Turn with me again to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. As we continue our study of this gospel, this fourth gospel. <coughs> John chapter 6, we'll look about the first <coughs> 14 verses today. Today we'll be talking about doing the impossible. Doing the impossible. I think that's an oxymoron. You know what an oxymoron is? It's a figure of speech where you combine two contradictory terms, two opposite terms. Like speaking of sweet sorrow <laughs> or thunderous silence. Those are oxymorons. Doing the impossible, contradictory. Yet we say such things, don't we? We talk about doing the impossible. We just take the word impossible a little lightly, perhaps. I, I saw an ad in Newsweek magazine last week that said that UPS can deliver at three speeds now. It can deliver at fast and faster and impossible speed. What's impossible speed? Let's see, that would be faster than 186,000 miles a second? I doubt it, not even UPS. We just redefine impossible. This morning we're going to talk about really impossible things. Because there's some of those around too. We have one in our text. Doing the really impossible. It's a biblical concept. Let's read the text. John chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked this only to test him. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each to have one bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, and about 5,000 of them. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves, left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. We'll stop there at verse 14. <coughs> this miracle I'm sure you're familiar with, the feeding of the 5,000. I doubt there's anyone here who's not heard the story. In fact, this is the one miracle other than the resurrection, I guess, but the one miracle that Jesus did that's recorded in all four of the Gospels, is the only one, 
recorded in all four of the Gospels. John gives the most complete account of this. He tells about the miracle, and then through the lengthy part of the second half of chapter 6, he, re- he records Jesus' long discord on the meaning, the significance, the symbology of this feeding of the people with the bread. But here in the first part of the chapter that we're looking at today, the emphasis is a little different. Here we don't have John recording the significance and the symbology of, of, the, of the, the miracle itself, of the bread itself, or the feeding itself. Here we have Jesus dealing with the disciples. Here we have some, some training of his disciples in ministry. We'll get to the significance of the miracle a little later on. This morning, lessons for discipleship, or lessons for ministry. Two lessons. The first is this. God has given us an impossible task. God has given us an impossible task. Do you think Jesus had a sense of humor? I'm sure he did. It's fully human, something humans tend to have. I think we see it here. We don't have Jesus telling a joke here. But I think we do have Jesus good-naturedly ribbing his disciples a little bit here in order to teach them something. I'll explain in a minute. We just read the story. Jesus wants to get away from it all. The crowds are pressing on him. He says to his disciples, come on, let's go up to the north side of the Sea of Galilee, up in the hills, and let's just be alone for a while. Let's spend some time in prayer together. Jesus knew that things were changing in his ministry. We're going to see in the Gospel of John from here on that the opposition increases. Jesus' ministry is not so quickly received the roots of opposition that we already have seen are, going to, are kind of going to become more and more hostile. Jesus needs to talk to his disciples about that. He needs to talk to them about their ministry and what it's going to mean for them to follow him. He needs to talk to them about his dying and the fact that they could die too. And so Jesus takes his disciples and he takes them aside. But the crowd, having tasted a little of the glory of Jesus isn't satisfied with that, and they follow. Where is he? They ask, and they just follow whatever information they can find until Jesus is now up in the hills with his disciples, and here comes the crowd. 5,000 men, one of the other gospels says, plus their wives and children, 10, 15, 20,000 people. Here they come, a great mass of people. looks like they just let out the fair, and it's all coming to your house. Jesus looks at this crowd coming. Huge mass of people. Nudges Philip. Says, Philip, how much is it going to take to feed these people? Can't you just see a little glint in Jesus' eye when he asks that? What are we going to do, Philip? What do you think? How much? Now, why did Jesus ask Philip that? Well, we learn if we look back in the early parts of the book that Philip is from Bethsaida. And if we look at a map, we find that Bethsaida is the nearest town. This is Philip's home turf. Philip's the one with the context. If there's anyone that has a catering service in Bethsaida, Philip will know. If there's anyone who could get some food out here in a hurry, Philip will know. So Jesus asked the one who has the most knowledge, the most resources, the most expertise, Philip, what do you think? 
What's it going to take to feed these people? But then again, our text says that even when Jesus asked that, he was only testing Philip. He knew already what he was going to do. Can you imagine Jesus doing that? It's kind of, I think it's a little bit lighthearted. A little bit of a test. He knows what he's going to do. He has it planned out in his mind. And here comes the crowd. And here's the disciples. And their eyes are getting bigger. And he says, Philip, what do you think? How much? How are we going to buy food for these people, Philip? What are you going to do, Philip? Well, now, Philip asked the right man. Jesus asked the right man. Philip was smart. Philip knew his stuff. He knew what was around. He knew what food cost in that area. Plus, he could do math in his head. That's important to know, too. And he began to calculate. The wheels are turning. And he thinks about it a minute. He kind of sums up the crowd and takes note of how many people there are and kind of how much food it would take. And he said, Jesus... If we could get together 200 denarii, that's eight months' wages, it's a lot of money in their day, maybe we could serve hors d'oeuvres, a bite apiece. <laughs> it was impossible. Philip just throws up his hands. He says, Jesus, we can't do it. I think Jesus kind of shook his head and said, yeah, that's right, you sure can't. Impossible task. And Jesus wasn't trying to humiliate Philip. He wasn't making fun of Philip. He wanted Philip to understand that it was an impossible task. There's no way they could feed these people. Jesus intentionally pressed his point, I believe, in order to train his disciples to make them useful to him. You see, we are so full of self-sufficiency. We treasure self-sufficiency in our society. We, we, we just practice being able to say, I can hack it, I can hack it, no matter what, let me add it, I can hack it. But Jesus knows that until we see things as impossible as they really are, that we're useless to Him. We can't hack it as long as we think we can. And so this morning I would say to you, in your own situation, if you're at the end of the rope, if you look at the task that God has given to you and you say, there's no way, Lord, it's impossible. I can't make this work. Then I would say, hallelujah, God is working in you. Just like he worked at Philip. If every time you look at the task, God nudges you and says, what are you going to do? And you say, I don't know, Lord. God is getting you ready to use you. Because he's causing you to see that the task God has given us is impossible. You see, this is how God has worked in the past. Verse 4 says that it's about Passover time. The exodus from Egypt is on their mind. They're reenacting this. They're celebrating. They're thinking about how God brought them out of Egypt and made of them a mighty nation. We talk about some impossible days. Those were impossible days. Evacuate a million and a half people on foot in one night. That's impossible. But they did. 
Take that bunch of people right out until they're backed right up against the Red Sea, and then the Egyptians decide to come after them anyway, and you're locked between the Red Sea and the army. It's impossible. And God delivered them. So that they could what? Get out in the desert where you've got a million and a half people to feed and to water in the desert. It's impossible. See, God is, has a history of putting His people in impossible situations. He's always given them impossible tasks. And Jesus is preparing His disciples for the impossibilities that they're going to face. Once he gets them convinced that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, the King who's come, then he's going to die. They're hometown boys. That's impossible. And they're all good little Jewish boys. He said, I want you to build a church that includes those Gentiles, those Romans that you hate, those Greeks who look down on you for your lack of sophistication. Those black people from down in Africa. Those people that you've never even met yet from every culture. That's the kind of church I want you It's impossible. See, God has given us an impossible task. And we're no exception, folks. Everything about what God calls us to is impossible. He calls us to follow Him. We who are spiritually dead, whose ears aren't listening to God, who love the sin that we're wrapped up into, He calls us to rise up and turn our back on all that sin that we love and follow Him, even if it means dying. That's impossible. People don't do that. And He calls us to lay aside the guilt and the despair that has formed our psyche and has left its wounds on us and to go out with confidence as the children of God. We can't do that. How do you just remake yourself? It's impossible. Then he calls us to love our wives even when they have an attitude like Christ loved the church. You say, you've got to be kidding, Lord. And to submit to that husband who we have a hard time even respecting. You say, I gotta, you've got to be kidding, Lord. He's not, no man's going to tell me what to do. And we don't see 5,000 people coming, but sometimes we see a bunch of little kids coming saying, Mommy, Daddy, I need this, I need that. We say, Lord, it's impossible. To raise those children to be servants of Christ in the midst of a world where nobody cares. And to live with integrity and purity in a world that considers those things laughable now. And then to do all of those things for the rest of our lives. It's impossible. God has given us an impossible task. To go with the gospel to the whole world. There's over 5 billion people in the world. Now how are you going to do that? Can't be done. To build a church that crosses racial lines. That crosses rich poor lines. That crosses cultural lines. You can't do that. Everybody, even church growth people say, you can't do that. You can't build churches like that's what the Lord tells us to do. It's impossible though. God has given us an impossible task. Make no mistake. 
And the interesting thing is that the impossibility of it has not escaped the Savior. In fact, this morning I think he would press the issue with us like he pressed it with Philip. So that we have no false hopes that we can somehow pull this off on our own. So as we look at the needs of our family, the Lord would nudge us and say, what are you going to do? And as we look at the impossibility of evangelizing the world, the Lord said, what's it going to take? Can you raise that much money? No way. As we look at the divisions in the church and ask how they could ever be mended, the Lord says, what are you going to do? Look at your wife or your husband have a hard time conjuring up the feelings that you used to have and hear the Lord saying, I want you to love like Christ, love the church, and be subject like the church is subject to Christ. And the Lord says, what are you going to do? How are you going to pull this off? It's impossible. So we look at our own souls and we see a time bomb full of fear and anger and lust ticking away, waiting to destroy us, and we don't know quite how to disarm it. And the Lord says, what are you going to do? How are you going to do this? How are you going to take care of this? It's impossible. God has given us impossible tasks. Which brings us to the second point. Jesus uses the insignificant to do the impossible. Jesus uses the insignificant to do the impossible. When we face seemingly impossible situations, the last thing we want is insignificant or trivial resources. I've been watching them build that bridge in front of my house. When they haul those big cement girders in there that weighed about 50 tons apiece, the last thing they wanted was all the kids from the neighborhood to come over and give them a hand. Mm -mm. We want big time power. Two biggest cranes I've ever seen in my life. That's what we need. Significant resources. If you're having a heart attack, you don't need someone to offer you band-aids. No, you need something more than that. But listen to this radical truth. Jesus has chosen to do the impossible tasks using the children and the band-aids. The insignificant things. Makes no sense. That's what he did. That's what we have in this account. What did Jesus do? He didn't just work without any means cause manna to fall from heaven. He could do that. He'd done it before. Or he didn't just cause the people not to be hungry. He could have done that, but he didn't do that. Nor did he work through extraordinary, wonderful means. Philip says, I do know this catering service, and they can handle 4,000. I think maybe if they stretched it, maybe. No, he doesn't do that either. Jesus didn't act without any resources, and he didn't act... Using extraordinary resources, what did he do? He used the most insignificant resources to do the most impossible task. 
Andrew, who was also from Bethsaida, but perhaps saw the situation a little quicker than Philip did, says, well, Lord, I did find this boy with a lunch. Boy, it's sure not much. I mean, it's not going to do a thing, Lord, but that's what we got. A poor boy with a poor lunch. We know he was poor, and we know it was a poor lunch because he had barley loaves in there, little buns made of barley bread, <coughs> pickled fish. The Mishnah, later on, the Jewish Mishnah was to say that barley was the food that was appropriate for beasts. It was poor people's food. A couple little pickled fish to help get it down. Poor boy, and poor lunch. And 10, 15, 20,000 hungry people. Now that's insignificant resources in the face of an impossible task. And that's what Jesus used. We know the story. Had him sit down. He gave thanks. Is this, is this outrageous? Jesus taking this poor boy's lunch. Saying, Father, thank you. Thank you for this food. And we would have been saying, Lord, what's the matter with you? <laughs> We're so hungry and you didn't provide. Thank you, Lord, for this insignificant lunch. And then he began to break bread. And in the master's hands, the insignificant lunch kept going and kept going until the people were fed and there was 12 baskets left over. God uses the insignificant to do the impossible. Now that's how God has always worked. If we go back to the exodus in Egypt, Moses complains when God tries to send him. Moses complains, I'm powerless, Lord, I can't do that. I can't go face the mighty Egyptians. I'm powerless. And the Lord says, what's that in your hand? Well, this is it's a stick, <laughs> my shepherd's rod. The Lord says, throw it on the ground. Moses throws it on the ground and becomes a serpent. The Lord says, pick it up. Moses is not so sure, but he picks it up and he becomes a rod again. Insignificant stick. But God took Moses and that insignificant stick and he used it to bring plagues upon Egypt until they would deliver God's people. And he used it to part the Red Sea. And he used it to strike the rock. And the water came from the rock to water. A million and a half people in the desert. You see, God uses the insignificant to accomplish the impossible. <coughs> Take David, for example. David's so insignificant that his own father doesn't even remember that he exists when Samuel comes saying, one of your sons is going to be king. He doesn't even bother to call David. David is so insignificant that when the mighty warrior Goliath stands out shouting offenses at Israel, and David comes out to fight him, he laughs in derision. He's insulted that they should send such a puny kid. David's insignificant. Boy that makes up songs while he tends the sheep. God took that insignificant kid and in God's hand, David and his sling became a mighty weapon that brought down Goliath that the whole army of Israel couldn't bring down and went on to build a kingdom like Israel has never known. God uses the insignificant to accomplish the impossible. And this is what Jesus was preparing his disciples for. This little band of folks, Philip and Andrew, 
Peter, James, John, the rest of them. Not one of them with any great education. Not one of them from a prominent family. Not one of them with any wealth. Not one of them with any political clout. And yet God intends to use them to bear witness of his resurrection, to do the miracles that he's done, and to go out to the world and to, be, and to turn the world upside down in one generation. God is preparing them to use the insignificant, to do the impossible. And the church that they build is full of insignificance. The Apostle Paul writes, not many of you are wise, not many of you are influential, not many of you are of noble birth. God has chosen the foolish. That's you and me, folks. God has chosen the foolish and the weak and the lowly and the despised. The things that are nothing in significance. To nullify all the things that are something. God uses the insignificant to do the impossible. Whether it's this little band of disciples or whether it's Moses leading people out of Egypt or whether it's a little boy with five barley loaves and two fish, God uses the insignificant to do the impossible. Now I'm not saying believe in yourself. You can do anything that you can believe you can do. Oh no, that's humanism and it's godless. I'm saying look your task right in the face. Admit the impossibility of the situation. But you need to understand when you see the greatness and the impossibility of the task and when you see the insignificance of all of your resources, you need to understand that Jesus... The Son of God, the Lord of glory, is in the business of taking the insignificant nothings of the world and using them to do the impossible task. <coughs> you and me, those kind of resources. Laughable, meager, insignificant resources. <coughs> Dr. James Boyce reminds us, he says, it's not the magnitude of the gift. It's into whose hands it's given. If you will take what you have, no matter how small or how great it may be, and place it in the hands of the master, you will find out that it is more than sufficient for whatever task he has set before you. God's not telling us what we can do. He's telling us what he does and how he does it. God uses the insignificant to accomplish the impossible. A couple of examples and I'll close. In 1865, a man named William Booth in London saw homeless people on the street Saw people needing food. Saw girls with babies and no husbands and no homes. And he set out to do something about it. One man with a heart for poor people. 
By 1878, they called it the Salvation Army. <clears throat> there are 81 little chapters, 120-some people working. That was in 1878. In 1884, there were 900 corps of Salvation Army units, 250 of them in other lands besides England. Nowadays, the Salvation Army provides probably 20 million meals a year, 10 million places to sleep a year, tracks down lost people, ministers to people in need, maintains hundreds of hospitals. How do you account for this phenomenal rise and phenomenal ministry? Something that started with one guy who was concerned to feed people on the street. Well, they asked William Booth about it once, and here's his explanation. He says, all I can say is that for the last 80 years, God has had all there is of William Booth. That's it. Oh, he didn't say, I've got this great training and I've got this wonderful resources and I've got a great bunch of backers and we've got unlimited funds. No. William Booth was given to God. And God takes the insignificant and he does the impossible. Last week you heard me talk a lot about the Promise Keepers Conference that I went to. This summer there's going to be probably in excess of 500,000 men attend one of those conferences. 13 different stadiums across this land. This has only been going on for about four years now. <clears throat> Dr. Richard Halverson, who just re retired as the chaplain of the Senate after several decades, says that this Promise Keepers movement is the most profound moving of the Spirit of God in this land in his lifetime. And it's not over yet. They plan to gather 75,000 pastors in Atlanta in February. In the summer of 97, they plan to have a million men on their knees in Washington, D.C. praying for this land. Now what I want to know is who's behind all this? What great seminary produced a great prominent theologian who's able to see the vision of that kind of movement of men to be godly men in this land. Well, we ought to support that school. Who is it? Or, or, or what coalition of church leaders from different denominations got their heads together and said, if we all work together, we can do this. We've got lots of resources. We've got millions of people. Who, who, who spearheaded this great movement? What great resources did God use? None of the above. Wrong question. A football coach who probably doesn't know any more theology than you do. Dared to believe that God could work in men with the gospel the way he worked in men to play football. God took an insignificant, non-anything as far as the church is concerned. Just a man. And out of that has come a great movement. That's how God works, you see. He takes the insignificant. 
He uses it to do the impossible. This morning I encourage you to look at the task before you. The impossible task that God has put on your plate. To look them right in the face. Let's not pretend that they're not really big. We can sit here and put blinders on, but five billion people is a big task, and they need to hear the gospel all over the world. And your family is a big task that's bigger than you can pull off, and you probably have proved that already. And your own personal integrity is a big task that probably you can't handle already. And once we can agree that God has really given us an impossible task, when we're willing to admit that we cannot pull it off, that we do not have the resources, that we're not big enough and we're not tough enough and we're not smart enough and we're not persevering enough and we're not wise enough, then we're ready for the next step. That is to bundle up what we have, our pitiful little lunch, me and what's mine. And say, here, Lord, here's my five loaves and two fishes. Here's me and my stuff, my little family, whatever I have. To say with the songwriter, I'm yours, Lord. Everything I've got, everything I am, everything I'm not, I'm yours. And amazingly, God takes those insignificant little lives, little families, little people. And he says, thank you, Father. And then he says... Go out, have the people sit down, begin to feed them. And as we do what he, do, what he says, God does the impossible, ways we never dreamed, using insignificant resources like us. Will you? The world is waiting. Family is waiting. The Savior is waiting. Saying, what are you going to do? How are you going to feed this bunch? How are you going to handle this? Here's all we got, Lord. It's yours. Dale Moody once said, and with this I close. He said, the world has yet to see the world has yet to see what God will do through one man who is absolutely fully surrendered to him. The world has yet to see what God can do through one person who is fully surrendered to Christ. And Moody went on to say, by God's grace, I will be that man. Amen. Father, we want to say, by God's grace, we want to be such a one. Though we see that the tasks we face are impossible and we don't even know where to begin, and all of our best calculations leave us looking like fools, and though, Lord, we see how meager we are, how pitifully insignificant we are. Lord, we would say, take us and use us, this poor little lunch that, we might, might, that might represent us. Use us, Lord, to do your will, to accomplish the impossible as you see fit. 
And Lord, when you do, we would be careful to give you the praise and you the glory. For Lord, we've agreed up front that we were in over our heads when we started. Do that with this little chapel, Lord. We may be considered the most insignificant church in the county by some. Lord, may that not cause us to think that you have nothing impossible for us to do. Take us, Lord, and change us and use us. Give us the grace to be fully surrendered to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.